Sitting across the desk from a DNA profiler, she told me that I was leaving a trail of cells in her office that could lead back to me, especially if I committed a crime there. The rapid advancement of science and technology makes DNA evidence a powerful investigative tool for catching killers and rapists, solving cold cases, identifying missing persons, and clearing the innocent. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs, here to take you inside the crime scene tape for a look at how DNA plays a central role in the judicial system. The first use of DNA typing for a criminal investigation occurred in 1986 into England. DNA evidence identified the killer of two 15-year-old girls and cleared an innocent, mentally challenged suspect who had confessed to one of the murders. Police conducted a DNA dragnet by collecting thousands of samples from men in the village around the crime scenes. I recommend watching Code of a Killer to learn more. It's a three-part British police drama which tells the story of the case. And I have placed a link to a story in The Guardian about the case. DNA analysis has come a long way since then. To bring us up to date, I asked Dr. Suzanne Bell to take me back to biology and chemistry class to understand the advances in science and technology. Dr. Bell is an emeritus professor and chair of the Department of Forensic and Investigative Sciences at West Virginia University. This is the first of a two-part series with her. Suzanne Bell is the co-author of Forensic DNA. Now, I've used this to kind of bone up on... uh, DNA as I'm reporting on forensic genetic genealogy. Uh, Suzanne, thank you for joining me. And uh, could we kind of start back with some high school biology and back to the Y chromosome, the X chromosome, just to get a basis for understanding where DNA is going in law enforcement? Oh, certainly. Um, DNA is the material that makes up our chromosomes. And it's the material that contains the genes If you unstrung all the DNA in your body, it would be (laughs) incredibly long. The molecule itself is kind of sticky and gooey, and that's where we encode our genes, and the genes are encoded in a series of, we, we abbreviate them as letters, but they're a series of amino acids, and we call them nucleotides, in which we have this DNA that we target for uh, the DNA profile. And it, it can tell if someone is a relative. Yes, that among other things, that's what it can do. There's many ways to analyze the DNA. And really, the DNA profiling that we see today is quite different than what it started as back. Really, the first DNA um, was coming into laboratories in the late 1980s, early 1990s in a very different form than what we see today. Well, let's start back then of how it got introduced into the courtroom and uh, first began to be used? It's always an evolution. I mean, that sometimes people don't appreciate that it's not an instantaneous thing. For evidence to get into a courtroom, it has to go through an admission process. And that's never seamless or transparent. Uh, We can't walk into a courtroom and say, wow, look what we can do. This is really advanced stuff, and we should be able to admit it. Not only does a technique like DNA profiling have to be scientifically validated, then it has to be validated by the courts, which is a very different kind of process. Um, 
the first um, type of biological identification um, your listeners are probably familiar with that we used was ABO blood typing, which was that kind of thing was developed early in the 20th century. And that was used and admitted for a long time. Then the next evolution that we saw was a different type of, of typing, serum proteins, which added a little bit to the value of biological evidence, but we still couldn't get down to the kinds of, of levels that we can get down to now in terms of the way we express the probabilities and the comparisons of profiles. So it's a very slow evolution. So when we moved from ABO to these serum proteins, there was a series of court hearings and admissibility proceedings that took a few years before courts would routinely accept it without going through these admissibility proceedings. So the same thing happened with DNA. And, and quite often when you do admissibility, you have to compare what the new technique to what the old technique was. So you have to convince the courts that this is not only better, but that the scientific community has accepted it. And then there's a series of questions that, that judges can ask or the decision makers can ask about a technique. Every state's different in the US as to how they govern these admissibility rules, but the core of it is all the same. Is it established scientifically? Is there a way to test it? Are there standards? And then the judge will make a decision as to whether it can be admitted. And early DNA went through the same thing. Uh, a series of hearings in the 90s, um, scientific boards were convened to discuss the admissibility when these first cases go through. And then eventually it's accepted without any kind of contest. But every time something new comes up, it has to go through a whole new process for admissibility to the court. Well, if I remember my high school biology, you know, DNA is the molecule, it's the code of life. Correct. Is it unique just to me? Or are there probabilities involved? Well, that's the that's a simple uh, a longer answer than that, and it, it depends again on how we look at the DNA. Right now, the way that we look at DNA and DNA profiles, we look at a very actually a very small part of of DNA, but it's the combination of profiles that we can assign a probability to those and. I'm not an expert in the, the nuances of how those probabilities are assigned, so I don't want to misstate that in the way, because it's a little bit different for DNA than it, you might think for other things like ABO blood typing. Roughly 44% of us are A. So you can look at that as a probability. So clearly an A blood type is not unique to you, to you or I. When you get to the level of the DNA profiling, you're really combining a series of types at separate locations. And when you combine those probabilities, that becomes much more, the probability of finding somebody else in the population like that becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. But we can never say never because we haven't typed everybody. So all we can state is in terms of, based on the databases that we had amassed, we can state probability in a way that makes it more useful to the court. And certainly your DNA profile probability of finding it in the population is, is incredibly minute. You know, billions or trillions, depending on what that is, compared to, say, 44% for a certain blood type. But yeah, until we type every person, we can't say that for sure. We just base it on. Yes, yes. Well, here in, in Texas, many other mm -hmm. states, DNA is collected from uh, convicted felons of certain types of crimes, usually murder and sexual assault, those type of things. Right. DNA is collected from convicted sex offenders, here too, put into a database. 
this stuff during criminal investigations is checked against the FBI's CODIS system that uses 20 markers. Could you explain that, how that came about and what they're checking there? Yeah, the CODIS system is actually, it's not one large database in a single place. And it's actually a series of different collections of linked evidence. So the convicted felons part of that is different from crime scene part of that, is different than things that, for example, my profiles are in that simply because I visited labs and they will test my DNA to make sure that my DNA doesn't show up as background, law enforcement and folks like that. So there's there's different different collections that are there. And then when a, uh, an unknown profile that's been developed is submitted to CODIS, they can go through a series of those comparisons. But it's, it's really important for listeners to understand that I, can have, I may have developed a wonderfully clear um, DNA profile from a crime scene, but if there's not a person in the database with that profile, we'll never see it. And a very small proportion of the population actually has their profile stored in the database. But that's, that's the progression that it goes through, and it is compared against that. And uh, cold cases and, are often compared at, at different intervals because the database is growing every day. So one that, that doesn't come up with a, a, a hit today may come up with a hit three months or three years from now. I see cases where DNA was taken years ago, and now with advanced technology is taken and they get more information that helps. What's happening there? The science and the technology is getting better. When DNA typing or even ABOs started, you needed something um, maybe the size of a dime to develop a good type or uh, in the very early days of DNA, which was um, looking for a much smaller number of locations in different locations. And as you move through that, um, then we got to the point where you could detect it with a spot the size of maybe a period at the end of a sentence. Now techniques have gotten so good that you don't really even need to see it to be able to detect it. And that's trace DNA, for example. And that's all developments in the way, in the technology, in the instrumentation, in the way that it's extracted. Um, DNA, when it's extracted from a sample, is always amplified. It's copied. Um, and the way that, that those things work is getting better all the time. So that's why that's a big reason why we can get more information out of much smaller bits of it. So you go back and you look. There's also um, early on in DNA, you mentioned your, the database that has 20 loci or locations in the DNA. That initially was 13. So now we have the reagents and the materials that allow to type ever more. Um, we can also now at this point type um, lo locations on the Y chromosome specifically, the X chromosome specifically, um, mitochondrial in some cases, mitochondrial DNA, which is really kind of a different topic, but very useful in things like missing persons. You know, mostly when people say DNA profiling, they're talking about the 20 locations on DNA. But technology moves on. Well, let's talk about chromosomes a minute. Mm -hmm. You've got a, a male who has an X and a Y. 
you have the female XX and then you got mitochondrial, which is from the mother and it goes Correct. through mother's ends with a, a male. But I have seen cases solved on mitochondrial. Yes, because you have a lot more, lot more mitochondrial DNA um, than you do the, the, the DNA profiling with the 20 loci is in the nuclei of your cells. Um, so every cell nucleus except red blood cells, which don't have a nucleus, that's where the DNA comes from, and that's a limited amount. You have many, many more copies of mitochondrial DNA in your cells. So it lasts longer, for one thing. So you, know, you have a much better chance of recovering it from older cases. Um, and historically, a lot of historical cases use mitochondrial DNA as well. Um, and it is a smaller molecule itself. So the smaller the fragment that you're looking for, the longer it lasts. And that's some of the early DNA day DNA typing. Um, that was the problem. They were looking for much bigger segments of DNA, and that breaks down quicker. So <laughs> you didn't have as much of a time frame to recover it as you do with mitochondrial. Mitochondrial, you'll see it recovered um, centuries sometimes, depending on how well it's preserved. Um, but it's not as variable. That's the downsize to it. It doesn't have the same degree of variation across the population as does the, the DNA, the typical DNA profile that you're thinking of. Plus, it's linked to your mother. So it, it, all it really helps you understand is who would be the female relatives. Um, and it doesn't provide you the same kind of statistical or evidentiary power, as we call it, as would a DNA, typical DNA profile. I'm curious, is it easier for a woman to get away uh, in a crime where DNA is left behind? <laughs> oh, I, I don't think you can say that at all. I mean, it's, okay. it, knowing the maternal line is still very valuable. Um, yes. It was used in uh, probably the most famous case was the identification of the Russian czar and his family. It was uh, important in that case. Um, but yeah, it's, it's more, it's not really investigative in the sense that you may be thinking. It's more useful in identification. That's why I'm saying for missing persons or when you recover remains that have been in the desert for decades or something like that, or the archaeological cases. I mean, you're really looking for identification. there. That's its primary use in the forensic realm. I've covered the military during my career, and right. uh, it always seemed that's what they were using to identify remains from Vietnam and other places. Right, because often those remain, you know, they've been in the environment so, for so long that the chances of recovering, you know, the other types of DNA that we've been talking about, the nuclear DNA, are, are low. So that's they rely on that a lot more often. Are there some myths and misconceptions you'd like to clear up about DNA and how it's used? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. There's there's a few that I think are misconceived by the public, not so much because of not understanding, but because of the way it's portrayed in the media. And we get that sense um, just because you find somebody's DNA on an object. Let's say you find your DNA on a kitchen knife. OK, that tells us that your DNA that some at some point you had contact with the knife. It tells us nothing about why. You had contact with the knife when you had contact with the knife um and if it has any relevance to the one event that is being investigated so for example if it's a crime any the dna that you really want to find is is the dna that was involved in the criminal act itself you know a very few seconds or few minutes whereas this knife has been has been in existence for <laughs> decades and 
that's one of the downsides of, of DNA getting more and more sensitive is, yes, we can recover more information, but it also means we can recover more information that may not be relevant to the event at hand. And so there's, that's a big area right now of uh, research and work in the forensic committees. How do you sort out these different contributions? What's relevant? What's not relevant? The DNA doesn't solve the case. It never solves the case. It's a piece of information, and often it's a vital piece of information, but it has to be integrated into the investigation. And all of the facts in that investigation have to be what we call internally consistent. So it has to make sense for comparing the different stories about what might have happened. You know, we, we find this evidence, but we don't know how or why it got there. Is it relevant? If it is relevant, what does it mean? You know, I've heard veteran homicide detectives complain about the young ones coming in that they all believe, well, we've got to have DNA to solve this case. They get frustrated about it. Right, because it, it is a piece of the investigation and only a piece, and it has to fit. So, When we talk about the sensitivity of the technology now, mm-hmm. do we solely rely on body fluids? Or if, if I'm a killer, just touching the person? Do I leave cells there that can be detected? If there's a transfer of cells, there is a transfer of, we call it nuclear material. So there is a transfer of DNA. The question is relative amounts. And how long does that linger? If you wash hands or do anything like that. And again, the killer may transfer in a hypothetical homicide, may touch a victim and leave a small deposit. But that DNA may have gotten there in other ways. I mean, if they live in the same household, finding somebody else's DNA on that person really doesn't provide us any information that we didn't already know. So yes, you can have transfers like that. And there are, um, they can be extraordinarily valuable, but the sensitivity, it floats every boat. So you can start picking up traces that, as we mentioned, are are irrelevant to the incident that we really care about understanding. In our next episode, Dr. Bell explains the use of new forensic genetic genealogy investigative techniques. It was used to catch the Golden State Killer and most recently to identify the alleged killer of four University of Idaho students. I'll be back next week with another story from Inside the Crime Scene Tape. This is Robert Riggs. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs, It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.